Uh, um, I'm Sean McCraney. Our show tonight is called, uh, our non-consensual show tonight is called The Simple Truth. And uh, I dedicate it to my brother Aaron M. Uh, anyway, uh, Simple Truth. Uh, first couple things. Campus Church has set out to gather analytics to better understand today's faith trends. And uh, our goal and mission is to get better understanding of people's faith and or non-faith. And so our reason for, for doing this is to help engage future audiences in topics that are going to be beneficial to their spiritual education and growth. So if you are a true believing Christian or if you're a God-hating atheist or a God, non-existing God person, uh, we ask that you take a moment and fill out a really short survey. It's very short that Larry also known as Larissimo, uh, put together for us. And it's a link in the YouTube description. So go to HOTM YouTube and you got it right there. Also, additionally, remember, we are on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We stream live on YouTube every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Be sure to subscribe. Click on the bell icon if you want notifications every time we go live or upload a shred. And if you're a podcast listener, we have most of the shows on podcasts. Check out the links below in the Dropbox. So there's some stuff that I had to get out of the way. LDS member Sam Young led a protest last uh, Friday night to um, um, in an effort to promote and get his Protect the Children campaign that he's doing. We had him on the show a number of weeks ago. I attended and I actually did do some marching. I didn't do as much marching as everybody else, but I did march and I stood there and I observed it. And the highlight of the whole thing was when the stories and the signatures were delivered over to a representative of the church at their headquarters. Um, it wasn't an apostle, it wasn't a prophet, it wasn't a clerk, it was a woman they sent out there. They locked the doors from what I was told, and then um, this woman comes out and she says to Sam, uh, please tell your people, don't touch the building. And I think she repeated it twice, please tell them not to touch the building. <laughs> it's such a strange thing, isn't it? That building's like a monolithic granite. I mean, you could take a, a jackhammer to it and you're not going to hurt it, but they, would, they didn't want anyone touching the building. And in a classic moment, I, a voice that sounded like John DeLenn to me, I don't know who it was, but it sounded like John DeLenn, uh, shouted, don't touch yourselves and don't touch the building. <laughs> so, I mean, classic, perfect timing. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. Uh, of course, the subject matter is not hilarious, you know, bishops getting kids and talking to them about sexual things, especially the father of daughters. Girls don't like that stuff, man. Boys don't really like it either, but girls really don't like it. So uh, following the march, um, our partner in ministry, Derek Webster and his son, Blake, they uh, hosted 700 sandwiches, cookies, chips, and drinks over at a place for people. And... Uh, they, uh, they set that all up for it. Here, we have a picture of that. Can we show that? Here's, uh, the, the place was beautiful. It was a little ways away, and, uh, but that was uh, something that happened for many of the marchers came over to that venue. And I want to point that out, though. Uh, Derek won't appreciate this, probably. 
But that's what Christian service is. I mean, the guy went over there and uh, he does this, not just for campus, he does it all over the place for people. And it's out of the love for he and Danita's heart and Blake and the rest of the Webster family to go and just help and support the body in whatever's going on. And uh, they just do that without any fanfare, set it up, take it down. And uh, I think, well, we always thank uh, and do thank Derek and Danita and Blake and and everybody who participates in that stuff. But that's, to me, what Christian service is. There's no fanfare with those people. They just do it, and it was a blessing to Sam and his crew. However, in terms of the march, I have to express my honest thoughts, because that's all I can do, and you may disagree with them. We live in an age where there's a lot of marches. There's a lot of protests. I mean, everything's getting protested. I'm really not much for them. I had never been to one before, and I went to to this. And uh, even though people might consider what we do here a public protest. Um, But I'm talking about marches and rallies uh, for this or that thing. Um, I am in large part against them because of the emotionally charged nature of them. Um, And uh, when emotions undergird something like that, often, not always, I know marches have helped, you know, but often the emotions can override anything of real importance that could be done in a, in a calmer, more reasonable setting. Let me give you an instance. I was standing there with Patrick in the park. He's a witness to this. And there, a, a fervent supporter of the cause came up to us and she said, um, Do you have, would you like a balloon? And I said, okay, I'll take a balloon. And then she said, do you have a sign? And I said, no, I don't have a sign. She goes, why not? And, and I go, I don't know. I don't want a sign. She goes, well, they're right over there, and they're really nice. And I said, no, I, I don't want a sign. And she said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, maybe I shouldn't be. I, I just said, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Immediately, it becomes its own religion. It becomes its own, you either are with us or you're cast out kind of thing. And it's, it's this mentality that goes with this kind of thinking. You know, we have our group, and this is our church, and you come and you do what we want you to do, or else get out of here. And it, it's just, it just, we fight against that with the churches. I fight against it with anything. If it was a government, if it was a 7-Eleven pushing Slurpees, it's just give everybody the right to kind of participate how they want to, or whatever. Later on, I, I met her again, and then she came up and said, I know who you are. And then she knew from the show. And uh, it was just kind of interesting. Group think. And, uh, you know, gather in with it, be it, agree with everything with it, or kind of go on. Uh, Bottom line, I really do like uh, Sam, and I appreciate his challenge, and I think the cause is good. And, but I do believe that Sam is hacking at the branches and not at the roots of the problem. He stood up and he proudly says, this is my church. This is my church. I'm, I'm proud to be a member of this church. And, uh, and he defends tacitly its doctrines and practices, really, ignoring the fact that what the bishops are doing are in harmony with LDS doctrines and practices of worthiness. 
You know, so really, if you want to change something, you got to you got to protest against the doctrines of salvation that the LDS preach, not the fact that I mean, I understand and it's good and we can that's a step in the right direction. But I think that Sam, I hope they excommunicate him and I hope that he wakes up to the fact that it's really the doctrine that creates this, even if they get bishops to not interview kids this way. I am certain that children, kids, 18 and under, will still get offended by the leadership in some way who are trying to vet them for worthiness. Because it comes down to doctrine. It's not just the practice that has been going on. Sam is focusing on the branches of the issue when the roots are far deeper. So uh, I take that for what it's worth. All right, I have a little friend. He's a dear friend of mine. I've known him for a while. And in the mornings, on the weekends, he comes into Einstein's. And his name is Wade. And Wade is, uh, he calls me his big Irish brother, and I call him my little Irish brother. And uh, Wade has Down syndrome. And um, I had some apple cider vinegar on my desk, on my table at, at Einstein's. I don't know if you ever drank that straight. But, of course, I had to offer Wade some, and Wade said, sure, let's have some. So I poured some in a cup, and I took a little video with my phone number, so I want to show it to you in preface of a story I'm going to tell. That's enough. That's very little bit. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Wolf it down. Let's see. Okay. Okay, you did it. Let me see if you swallow it. <laughs> what do you think of it? Tasty. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to show you that to show you the relationship that we have had a long time. And so, Saturday, an LDS couple come into Einstein's. They're going to a general conference, and they're dressed in their garb. And uh, they get a hold of Wade. And I can hear what's going on. And they say, well, what's your name? And, and he says, my name's Wade. And they said, do you go to church, Wade? First thing out of their mouth. And Wade says, no. And they said, well, how come? And I think he said, well, I'm a Catholic. And... Uh, and they said, do you want to go to church? And, uh, you know, I've stepped back from focusing on Mormonism for quite a while. It really isn't even in my f the forefront of my mind that much anymore, but it's starting to come back a little bit. And uh, I got hotly jealous. And I use that word jealous because this was a defenseless young man. And this couple were throwing out the... Mormon speech on him. And I don't think Wade needs to go anywhere. I think Wade is fine. So I was here. Uh, I better understand when God says he's a jealous God in the Old Testament, meaning he doesn't want people messing with his bride. He doesn't want people messing with his children. And he doesn't want his children going after other gods. He's a jealous God. 
And the woman said, you know, uh, have you ever been to the Mormon church? And I got up from my chair. And I started to approach him. Well, her husband saw me, and my face wasn't very happy, I guess. And so he grabbed his wife and took her away, and they moved over to a table. And uh, in my flesh, I wanted to tear them up. But because they backed off, I just let it die, and I went over and I put Wade in a headlock. I said, my little Catholic friend, how you doing? And he said, good and stuff. Something's working again with this Mormon thing. Maybe going to the park and seeing the passion of people who have been harmed. Uh, maybe it's Larry Greenwood's things on Facebook and the temple stuff. Maybe it's the facade. Maybe it's the changes that they are going to to try to look like they still have it all together, like combining high priests and elders, making it look like it's some cool thing when in reality it's a sign of shrinkage and they don't want to look bad. Because you know darn well that if the church was really growing big enough and they had a bunch of high priests and elders, they would never combine them. They just don't want three guys sitting in each uh, thing looking around saying, doesn't anybody come to church anymore? So uh, something's working. We'll see where God takes it. In the meanwhile, let's go to the board and let's talk about our topic tonight. All right. I'm going to share a couple, couple things from Scripture to help you understand some concepts. And then we're going to talk about uh, a simple truth. Okay? The first thing I want you to know is this represents ancient Israel. And how, uh, you need, what do you need me to do? On this side? Okay, here's ancient Israel, and this represents the tabernacle. It was a tent that was specifically designed by God. Moses built it exactly. And when they would camp in the wilderness, they would make that temple central to their camp. Then they would put three tribes to the west of it, three uh, to the east of it, three tribes to the south, Three tribes would camp on the west of it, and three tribes would uh, camp to the north of it. That's described in the, in the Old Testament. By the way, you might notice here that this thing forms a cross uh, in the way that the camp was laid out all the way back in the Old Testament. Just a little side issue. What's interesting about this is then they had perimeter of the camp, and it was, it was designated by a certain number of feet, and you could only travel so far within the camp on the Sabbath day without breaking the Sabbath. Outside the camp is where ancient Israel was commanded, listen, take everything that is dead. If you're going to stone somebody, that means with rocks, do it outside the camp. If somebody has leprosy, get them outside the camp. Take all of our garbage outside the camp. Everything was outside the camp that was not part of ancient Israel. You got that idea in hand? Okay, so let's come back over to here and let's look at actual brick-and-mortar Jerusalem in Jesus' day. At the same time, this is representing Herod's temple. And it had the wall all the way around it. Terrible rendering. I know there was much more to it. Buildings inside the city. And we know that outside the city gates is where uh, Cal Calvary was. And Jesus was put to death outside the camp, just like that. So if we look at the Old Testament, we know that outside the camp is where the diseased, the sinners, 
people were stoned to death, the trash, the, the, the dead things, the, the uh, sacrifice parts that remained. They were all taken outside. And so what we have here is another picture of Jesus dying outside the city, outside of the camp. Really important picture and type to see what he became because of our sin. He had every right to be right here and, and dwelling in the city as a man and as God with us. But because of our sin, he was taken outside and crucified like a common dog, a common piece of criminal. Okay? So we know also that in Revelation, there is a new Jerusalem. Now the old Jerusalem's brick and mortar, and this was destroyed in 70 AD. And Hebrews tells us that it was shaken to the dust. It was taken to the ground so that the only thing to remain are, is what can be unshakable from that point forward. And we also know from Hebrews and from the Old Testament that after the brick and mortar Jerusalem was shaken down, that means the temple was utterly destroyed, that God said, in that day, I'm going to write my laws on people's minds and on their hearts and they will be my children and I will be their God and no man will say to another, know the Lord, know the Lord, for all will know me. What, what God is talking about there is the destruction of the brick and mortar city, but the establishment of a new Jerusalem, which is in heaven is how scripture puts it. And it's, it's run from heaven. Okay. So I wanted to give all of that as a preface to what I'm going to say now. John Calvin taught that this is what it looks like, man and God. God says, I will choose everything. You people will choose nothing. I'm going to choose a few people to be saved to the heavenly Jerusalem. And the rest are going to burn in hell forever and ever. That is called Calvinism. Most burn in hell forever. Trillions, we could just say. And some are saved because God elects them to heaven. That's what Calvin said. Jacob Arminius came along and Arminius said, no, that's not true. He said, God wants to save everybody, but he doesn't overwhelm them and their free will. So those people who choose not to love God, they are going to go to eternal hell. So really it's the same thing. Either God sovereignly picks people to go to hell, according to the Calvinists, or to the Arminius, God says, I want you to come to heaven, but man's will trumps God's will, and so most go to hell, because most don't pick uh, Jesus. So Arminianism and Calvinism as the two main representations of salvation in Christianity, in my estimation, fail. Because in, in Arminianism, man's will trumps God's. And in Calvinism, God's will is not loving and, and kind for everybody. So those two ways, in my estimation, of reading scripture, not just some system I've conco concocted, but reading scripture says to me, no, there, there, there has to be another way, all right? So that takes us to this. Over here, these people, can you see that, Seth? These people represent the human race, all human beings, 
okay? And this is a catapult. This catapult represents death. On the catapult is one human being. And when that person dies, the catapult releases, and it sends that person straight to heaven. Straight to heaven. I believe, remember these represent all human beings, I believe every person when they get on the catapult, at death, that's what the catapult is, are launched straight to heaven. Now, people say that's universalism. Well, I believe that on the way or here, their knee will bow, their tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. That's what scripture says. Scripture also says that Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe all men, especially those who believe. Scripture says that it is God's will that none would perish, and that's his emphatic sovereign will that none would perish. So I believe that our answer is very plain in Scripture, that through Christ Jesus going to Calvary on our behalf, the sins of the world, that the whole world has been reconciled to God. Now, when a person, let's just use this guy right here, let's say that he's a non-believer. He gets catapulted at death into heaven, and when you enter into the realm of heaven, God is said to be a consuming fire. If that person never had a spiritual life, God's fire, I believe, will consume whatever is not of him upon entry. And it will leave a remnant of whatever is of him with that person to live eternally with. I believe if that person is not God's by faith and doesn't really care, they will enter heaven, but they will live outside the city gates. The, the outside, the uh, New Jerusalem. Just like old Jerusalem had many, many countries of pagans and millions of people who lived outside of Jerusalem where their temple was, I believe that we can say that those who have not been saved by Christ through faith, they will enter in and they'll live outside the new Jerusalem. Now, those who, let's put another person on here and let's say this guy is a believer now. There's a detour he takes. And that is where his flesh makes a pit stop to the cross of Christ. And so when the catapult comes, what happens is his spirit and the things that are spiritually regenerated and of God go to God and they go into the city realm. Okay? His flesh has been crucified with Christ and so most of it, some of it, all of it, a little of it, will have been put to death while he lived on this earth, but his spirit will go and he'll receive a resurrected body. And let's say that this guy was someone who believed in Jesus, but he did nothing else. He may live inside the city gates because he has been accepted into the kingdom. But the question is, can he get into the temple? Because remember, in every case of how God set it up, Old Testament, brick and mortar Jerusalem, the temple was there. The new Jerusalem has a temple, but God is its light. The Holy of Holies is where Christ lives. So the question is, well, who then enters 
heaven and doesn't live outside the city gates, doesn't live just within the city gates, but actually enters into the temple. And then the question becomes, who actually not only enters the temple in the New Jerusalem as a priest, but enters into the Holy of Holies as a joint heir with Christ? Now, I'm not preaching anything the Bible doesn't teach. I'm not preaching multi-kingdoms, anything like that. There's one kingdom, there's one God, there's one heaven, there's one hell. Hell has been done away with because of what Jesus did on the cross in the nation of Israel. So now what happens is everybody over here is receiving, they are reaping what they've sown in their life. The person at death who's catapulted into heaven, who did nothing or had no care for God at all, will probably live outside the New Jerusalem in the heavenly realm. What does that mean? I have no idea. But those who have known Jesus by faith will enter into the city gates. Those who have known him by faith and lived the life with him, uh, walking with him, might enter into the temple. And those who have suffered and gave their entire being for him through the Spirit, not by religion, but by dying to the flesh and living to the Spirit, might enter into the Holy of Holies. So I wanted to set all of that up for the rest of what I'm going to say right now, which are the simple truths. Okay. Patrick, will you grab me a water? I'm sorry. Taking all that I just said in, Scripture gives us a few key insights to those not who reside outside the city gates, not those who reside within the city, not even those who have a place in the temple, but those who, thank you, will live and abide in the Holy of Holies. And all this is spiritual. Understand, I'm not talking about actual. This is spiritual destinations described in Revelation and other parts of Scripture. I'm going to use Scripture now to justify Holy of Holy dwellers. That's all I'm talking about. I have no ambition to know who can work in the temple, who can dwell in the city, who lives outside the city gates. No interest at all in addressing that in my ministry and my life. I care about what it means to be a Christian, to dwell with Christ as a joint heir in the Holy of Holies. First thing, sons and daughters will suffer. Not a popular word. Some key passages, Matthew 10, 38, And he that taketh not his cross and follows not after me is not worthy of me. That cross is emblematic. It's a metonym for suffering. If you aren't willing to take up your cross and follow Christ, follow him where? Follow him to Calvary, outside the city gates, and die to your flesh, you're not worthy of me, he says. Now, he said it. I didn't say it. He did. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So there's another. All, it says there, will suffer persecution. How does that work? Well, maybe you're invited to go to a Christmas party. And it's going to be a grand time. And you don't want to go because you're doing something else and everybody's on your case and they're persecuting you a little bit on Facebook. I don't know. There is suffering for following Christ. You figure out what that means in your life. Acts 14.2, Luke writes, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, 
that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. So we know that it's at least entering into that kingdom, into that city, that kingdom where the new Jerusalem has been established, through tribulation. Acts 5.41, they departed from the present council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Romans 8.17 is key. Paul says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ to not only believe on him, to not only believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now I know this is bitter medicine. This isn't popular what I'm talking about. But this is how I see it. So people who say, oh, you're just preaching universalism. Everybody just gets to go to heaven. Hey, who wants to go to anything but into relationship with God? I'm telling you what the real relationship amounts to and what it looks like for us. So it's not some easy past that I'm just creating here. It's what scripture says. Finally, it says in 2 Timothy 2.11, it is a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Heavy medicine. In our day and age, where does, how does this suffering take place? It's really clear. It's not through mortifications of the flesh. It's not through self-flagellation. It's not through fasts. And it's not through all this stuff. It is the suffering of our willful heart to die to his will. He tells us what his will is by the Spirit. We each know what he wants us to do. It's dying to our will, living to his. That's what it is. It's internal. It's a heart and mind suffering. You know, it's me saying, I want to bang the neighbor's wife. I use that a lot because this is a man's thing. I want to bang the neighbor's wife. She's coming on to me. She's smiling at me big time. Whoa, she's invited me over. My flesh wants to do that. Internally, in my heart and mind, I say, no, not my will, but yours be done. That's where the suffering takes place, inwardly. So understand, I'm not trying to put anybody on a bunch of rules. I'm just trying to tell people, get real with God and know what he wants for you. Now, he may grant you great liberty. He may give you, if you don't find certain things wrong or sinful, you're free in that. I believe that completely. That's why it's between you and that's why I can't tell you what it means for you to suffer. Only you know. And guess what that means? You're responsible for your relationship with God and for your salvation. That's why we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is on our heart what he wants us to do and be. And we can either choose to live to it or not. This suffering simply says, I die to my will, which is so freaking painful because our will wants what our will wants, right? And this is the point where our trajectory is determined to go to the cross. It's when we're on our flight in our flesh and in our body and we are a Christian and our flesh has to die. That trajectory changes. And let me tell you something. 
the destination of our trajectory cannot be determined until it starts to head down. Meaning we, have, we, we don't know where we're going to end up in our flesh until our flesh starts to die. When it starts to die, it starts to head down. Instead of our flesh going up, 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 it starts to die. And once it turns downward, we can determine our, our destination. And guess what that destination is in a Christian when their flesh starts to turn downward? It's the cross. It's Calvary. We are all sent up. And, when our, and, our, and God is saying, turn your flesh to Calvary. And once you turn it, that's where you're going to end up, hanging on the cross inwardly of your will versus God's. Uh, Paul says, now therefore it is, uh, there is an utterly a fault among you. He says, why would you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? This was in 1 Corinthians. It's a suffering of injustice. It's a suffering of um, humility. It's a suffering of, of all sorts of things like that. So in other words, those who are his will suffer because he suffered. He is the suffering Messiah. It can't be lost in this day and age. And it's relentless. It doesn't let up. And so where we are covered in his grace for our failures to suffer completely, saved completely in our failures to suffer to our flesh, we are rewarded, we will reap better if we sow to the Spirit in the long run. Joint heirs, if. Part and parcel with suffering is to possess His love. And I say part and parcel because often, most often, the suffering a Christian endures is choosing to love versus choosing to do something else. So that is an insufferable state when you have to choose to love somebody that does not deserve it. That is, so love and suffering come hand in hand. If I say I love my wife, I love the Lord, but I won't suffer my flesh to ignore the broad next door, there's a problem in the equation. That's why real love comes with real suffering, and they go hand in hand. So if you want to kind of gauge what your walk is like, it's really the love you're giving. How often you forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. How long-suffering you are with the annoying people. How, how patient you are. All the things we're talking about, right? That's where the suffering really has tangibility. It isn't so much just dying to your carnal nature. That has been taken care of by Christ. But the expectation to then love is the real insufferable part. You know, when we look at the life of our Lord, he entered the world at a time of deep abiding religious traditions. And his war was based in part to show the people that their traditions were keeping them in bondage. As described for his willingness to teach the truth, they maligned him, and then they killed him. Well, this is not just a random situation that he faced alone. Don't let this escape you. The import of love and suffering go hand in hand. Um, there's also one more point I want to bring out about love, and it's loving the truth. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, 
because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. This love of the truth, from what I can tell, says in effect, I don't want anything but truth. A love for the truth. Paul says they didn't receive a love of the truth. If you're a Christian and you don't have a love of the truth, you're really not going to have a love of how to live your life, and therefore you're not going to have a love of suffering because you really won't know what that looks like. So they are all intermingled. Nothing short of the truth in the Christian life matters. Nothing. No matter how convenient or popular anything might be, if it's not the truth, true Christians don't want it. The people who will be joint heirs will suffer for that seeking of truth. And, and uh, the way a person knows if they have received this is when it comes to saving face or embracing the truth. Being popular, embracing the truth. Uh, uh, not loving or embracing the truth of needing to love. Those types of signs are really good and they're indicative of who we are in Christ. And uh, when Jesus, of course, you know this one, we talk about it a lot. When he walked the earth, he said, when the hour comes and now is, but the hour comes and now is, when the true worshipers, and I'm going to tell you something, you want to be a true worshiper in that realm. You don't want to be outside the city gates. You don't want to be just roaming around in the city. You want to be a true worshiper. That's the place you want to be. And Jesus said, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in the truth. So, uh, suffering, then a relentless pursuit of the truth in love. And that love is the currency of the new Jerusalem. First uh, Peter 1.22 says it really well, and we'll wrap it up. He says, seeing you have purified your souls, that's, that's an in, uh, indication of suffering. To purify something requires suffering, okay? Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love, all three are mentioned there, of the brethren, see that you love one another with a perfect heart fervently. John the Beloved puts it this way in 1 John 3.18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed. That's suffering. When love goes from word to being in deed, that's when you begin to suffer. And in truth, that's aletheia. That's what our ministry is called, aletheia. We transliterated it in English so it's easier to pronounce from the Greek, but it's truth ministries. So if you're, if you're on living your life and you are going to be catapulted and you don't care about what happens here, I believe that God cares enough that he's going to reconcile you. And I do believe that your knees will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I believe God will give you a place in this realm, not in this one, but I don't think you're... I think you're going to be satisfied because it's going to be outside of what's important to him. But if you're interested in getting in the new Jerusalem that dwells and lives and is in heaven, that has a temple where God is the light of it and a holy of holies where his son is next to him, sitting next to him in power and glory and you're a joint heir, then remember those three simple truths. There is truth 
there is suffering and there is love in the Christian walk. Okay, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413, and we have somebody from the UK, Aaron, on line one. Aaron, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello there, I'm calling from the UK. I'd just like to say, so I've, been, I've watched every single one of your back catalogue of shows, just like to say thank you, because you got me out of that mess. Awesome, brother. So you were LDS? Yeah, I was LDS for about three and a half years, and I started looking more and more into the history, and it just doesn't add up. Mm. Praise God. Did, did you, yeah. did, you converted at what age? Uh, I was probably about 25 at the time I converted. Mm -hmm. And did you marry? And no, I didn't. I was, there was, I was getting ready to go through the temple, but I hadn't yet gone to the temple, and that's why I started looking more and more. Really and good. I realized that it's just phony, and it's, it's just a copycat of the um, Freemasons. Awesome. We're so happy for you, Aaron. One more question, my brother. Where are you in your faith today? I'm going, finally going back to church. I just started attending this Easter, just gone, a local church. Good. Well, praise God, my brother. Keep seeking Christ, and uh, we're with you. Thank you very much, and I'm with you as well. Keep up your good work. Thanks, Aaron. Bye-bye. Bye. You just can't beat the accent. I just fall in love with them every time I hear it. I don't care what gender they are. They become my relationship immediately. Uh, I don't think we have any other calls, so we're going to wrap it up early. Uh, keep seeking Him in spirit and truth, you guys. And, uh, you know, support your churches. They're doing their best, trying their best. If they're not doing good things, don't do it. Don't support them. Um, walk if you must. Don't pay tithes if, if it's going to mean uh, that the pastor will have to wake up and smell the coffee of things that they're doing. But seek God and not religion. Seek God through his son and uh, you will have um, a really rewarding spiritual life. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.